You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What is going on in the wardroom of the White House? And what does Woodrow Wilson have to do with it? The wardroom is a small room off the side of the mess in the White House. While the president has his own dining room in the White House, the Navy maintains a restaurant. This is known as the mess. But the term mess is a bit deceiving. It is not an ugly cafeteria. It is a spacious and elegant dining room. And off to the side, where usually the officers eat, is the wardroom. According to the New York Times, it's also the room where some of the White House staff most involved in political operations meet. And this would be Joel Benenson, the pollster, Jim Matheson, Deputy Chief of Staff, as well as the White House political director, and from time to time other folks. Perhaps it is because it is off to the side and secure that it is the scene of political discussions. These meetings occur, according to the New York Times, on a weekly basis, now that the midterms are close. In these meetings in the wardroom, there are already places where the president is, quote, not allowed to go because his poll ratings are too high. So we ask this simple question. Will the folks in the wardroom decide to send the president out or hold the president in? They probably won't look at it, but history has some lessons. Does the White House feel better about having these meetings off to the side of the mess? Is it just far enough away from the Oval Office for everybody to feel good about the fact that politics are being discussed in the White House? In any White House, despite the lofty claims of no politics, political discussions occurred. Ronald Reagan stated that in any decision he made as president, he would not allow a member of his staff to bring up politics. And that's probably true. Yet Reagan's management style was to hold back a bit. And his staff ran their departments, their offices, and he stepped in only when needed or when he felt particularly strongly about a subject. And not that often. So political considerations certainly entered into Reagan's White House on the part of the staff members if we took him at his word and that they did not enter consideration in the Oval Office. Political memos did reach Reagan's desk, and one in particular in 1982, before the midterms, during the summer, said Republicans were in trouble unless the president, quote, kept up his political schedule. Unemployment in 1982 was double digits, 10, 11 percent, the highest measured since 1940. Sounds a little bit familiar. Richard Beale of the Office of Planning and Evaluation, said that if the election were held in June 1982, Republicans would lose 44 House seats. 
although Reagan was busy with Lebanon and other matters. He managed to reach out in October and campaign for Republican candidates for Congress. Despite Reagan's approval rating in 1982 now being as low as 42%, with only 48% thinking he was a good leader, compared to 69% earlier in the year, he hit the campaign trail. The result of the midterm of 1982, the Democrats picked up 26 seats and a moral victory. And although they would not control much more than they already did, the Republicans still had the Senate and Democrats had the House before the election, they would have more courage to stand up to what had been, in the year of 1981, a Reagan steamroller in Washington. Like most White Houses, Reagan's White House tried to put a positive spin on it. We held the Senate. For President Nixon, politics was always discussed in the Oval Office and everywhere else. Politics dominated the presidency. And Nixon thought about politics a lot. He would call in Chuck Colson or Bob Hadelman and talk on and on about politics, what the Democrats were doing, the effect of various media stories. Or he'd go back and tell old stories of how he bested his opponents in California politics. He'd talk about how the campaign was using Agnew too much, who was using Vice President Agnew too much, working him too hard. He'd talk about and write about using Catholic voters, appearing at masses, avoiding contentious issues like abortion and Israel. He'd talk about how to dodge the issue of civil rights while attacking the courts. The South, he said, would get his meaning, even if they didn't say anything directly. And President Nixon did more than just talk about politics. In his memos, he directed Hadelman to give 100000 here, 200000 there, supporting Republican candidates for governor, Congress, Senate. On Election Day, he called Bill Buckley, commentator whose brother Jeff was running for Senate in New York. He offered Bill a Quaker prayer for his brother and told him to give his brother this advice. After the polls close, go have a beer and relax. If only... Perhaps President Nixon had remained a virtual participant, a dispenser of advice, a virtual beer buddy, but he did more. Days before the election, Nixon swept across the country from Chicago, Rochester, Minnesota, Omaha, San Jose, California, Connecticut, quick stops in New York. But the real event came in Phoenix, Arizona, in the midterms of 1970, in front of a bust-in crowd, throngs of supporters. He called the demonstrators that currently were plaguing political events hoodlums and thugs. He decried those who carry a peace sign in one hand and a bomb in the other, he said. Nixon told Bob Hadelman he loved his own speech, and he told Hadelman to put it on all three networks. In 1970, when the networks put a message on, and today, recently, when it, Networks put a message on from the president. They had to offer the same to the opposition party. This meant that the networks went to the Democrats for a response speech. The Democrats chose Senator Edmund Muskie, who had been the vice presidential candidate in 1968. He gave a polished speech from his Kenny Bunkport Maine home. Quietly, he condemned the politics of fear. Compared to Nixon's speech which was taken from the live feed of the rally in Phoenix, Arizona, which looked grainy. 
Attorney General Bob Mitchell said, my God, it looks like he's running for sheriff. Referring to Nixon. In the end, the Republicans under Nixon thought they might gain the House in 1970. But instead, they lost nine seats in the House and 11 governorships. Nixon's candidate in Texas, who he had endorsed, George W. Bush, was beaten by Senator Lloyd Benson. But at least the Republicans had beat Al Gore, Al Gore Sr., that is, in Tennessee. And the star governor of the Republican Party, Ronald Reagan of California, won an easy re-election. The Senate would be 55 to 45 Democratic, and the House 254 to 181. Like all White Houses, the Nixon White House would say their reaction was the election went as expected. Within the White House, though, John Ehrlichman would say it was a missed opportunity. A review of history might indicate the White House, quote, lie that they issued to the press is actually more accurate than Ehrlichman's statement, the inner White House, quote, truth. Almost no midterm is an opportunity for the White House, almost none. At best, the president staves off a loss. Only Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1934, and George W. Bush in 2002 gained seats for their party during their first-term midterms. Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt, this time Franklin Roosevelt in his third-term midterm, would lose seats in the midst of a wartime emergency as voters registered on happiness. Midterms, or rarely opportunities, except opportunities for the voters to speak about the incumbent in the White House. We've talked on this program before about the conversation between President Bill Clinton and his friend Charlie at night about politics in the White House. Charlie, of course, was Dick Morris, now a bitter opponent of both of the Clintons, but then their employee and consultant. Charlie's advice to Bill Clinton was to stop campaigning during the midterms. Just be the president. Clinton was incredulous. He got good, and sometimes he got bad advice from Dick Morris. And as far as Clinton was concerned, this was certainly bad advice, and he had to take it and disregard it in this case. In 1994, even though Clinton's approval ratings were not all that high, he would not reach 50% until the last year of his first term. Democrats were still begging the president to come to their state. They wanted the motorcade. But the day after the 94 election, which ended in disaster for Democrats, they lost the House. Clinton called Morris and said, you were right. Nor is it the only story of a president campaigning during midterms. In 1918, Woodrow Wilson had had enough of the Republicans and some isolationist Democrats who could not see his vision of a League of Nations, a proposal as part of the Versailles Peace Conference. He issued a statement in newspapers asking America to give him, Woodrow Wilson, a Congress that he could work with, help the president by voting for the president's party in the midterm election. What he got was a Republican House and Senate. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. 
It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. American voters like presidents sometimes. They hate presidents sometimes. But they don't tend to want to give a president a Congress all that often. Some really cannot. Senate, House seats are so partisanly drawn that often there is no way one party or the other will lose, even if a few people who live in that district like the president. The website 538.com recently issued a study that showed that poor districts were likely to hold a Democrat in Congress, even if they voted in the past for George W. Bush, even if they voted in the past for Reagan. But if it's a poor district, they're likely to keep that congressional seat Democrat. Wealthier district, more likely to keep that congressional seat Republican, even if they vote for a Bill Clinton or Barack Obama or John Kerry for president. 538 study suggests that it's two-dimensional. There's the political, partisan reality of a district. Oh, this district is so Republican. Then there's the economic reality. And both of them run counter to any kind of a idea of a president going out there and bringing Air Force One to your town and campaigning. Woodrow Wilson was speaking in the newspaper versus the TV. Andrew Johnson, for the most part, was campaigning on the stump. In 1866, his what was called the square around the circle, trying to get supporters for his plan of reconstruction. You could put his campaign in the category of 
presidents who hurt themselves in midterm elections. He was tired of the Republicans, the radical Republicans in Congress. Keep in mind, some of these Republicans were some of the same people who had given Lincoln grief over his plan to bring Louisiana and Arkansas back into the Union after Union troops had occupied those states, before Lee's surrender. These Republicans didn't like Johnson's plan that essentially gave voting rights back to white Southerners and were to hand the South over to what were called Redeemer state governments. Initially, when Johnson became president, the radical Republicans liked him, thinking he would be harsher. He was a harsh man, thinking he'd be harsher on the South, but it didn't turn out that way. So in 1866, with General Grant in tow, he began to make a series of speeches. The president did not perform well rhetorically. He got into arguments with the crowd. He'd go after hecklers verbally. Initially, General Grant supported the president, but being on this trip with him put him in an awful situation. But did President Johnson, President Wilson, President Reagan, President Nixon cause the midterm loss by appearing out there? Is it like what Dick Morris suggested? Is it a cause or just a symptom? I tend to think presidential visits are just non-effectual, but don't cost the election. But then sometimes they may. The pressures of party are in direct conflict with the historical record. As Obama's folks meet in the wardroom, they may not look much at the historical record that I'm talking about. They might not think much about Woodrow Wilson and his 1918 campaign to get a Democratic House and Senate. Even a president who has an approval rating, which is below 50, can bring support and money to a congressional incumbent or a challenger. And it can certainly create a good news story in the local papers for that congressman or candidate. Where I think the damage occurs with a president going out on the stump is that it distracts from governing. And that, I think, is the problem. Morris thinks it's the image of the president out there campaigning that makes him look partisan. And he told Bill Clinton, don't go out there and campaign. They want to see you as the leader, not as somebody out there on the stump fighting and attacking Republicans. I'm not so sure if it's the image of the president out there or if it's just the fact that if the president is hitting the stump, The president can't be meeting with world leaders. The president can't be meeting with congressional leaders. The president loses a lot of leverage dealing with the opposition party at all because he's out there attacking the same people. And then that affects the performance of the presidency and thus affects the midterm result. So what will happen in the wardroom of the White House? Probably not a review of what Woodrow Wilson and Andrew Johnson did. There will be the review of the request of various legislatures. No doubt, there will be two items in the minds of the members of the wardroom meetings. President, low as his approval is, is higher than Congress. Not a shocker. Congress, as a whole, is usually pretty low in public opinion polls. Hate the Capitol Dome is usually the rule in our politics. We hate that thing that spends money and filibusters things. We hate gridlock. We hate earmarks and pork. We hate lobbyists. But in terms of your congressman in your district, the poll numbers are usually going to be a little higher than the Congress as a whole. 
Still, I think the fact that the president's above the Congress will be a factor. And for much of the year, Republicans have been fairly close to Democrats in generic polling, meaning would you vote for the Republican or the Democrat in your congressional election? And Republicans haven't been trouncing Democrats in these polls as they were in 1994. These two things and the normal pull of party will probably lead the wardroom folks to send Obama on the road. What happens then will be a page in the history of midterms, which gets richer every four years. I want to thank you for listening. The website is myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We have the Facebook site. The archive is available for $14.99. I do thank you uh, if you have purchased the archive. It does contain hours and hours of material that we've recorded, some of which has been aired on the program since we started in 2006. Wide range of political topics that we apply history to. And if you like the program, why not tell someone about it? We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.